the, the great thing about being at two services, you get to experience what happens at first and at the second one. So if you had been at first service, you guys would have thought that you were getting ice cream after the service, not on July 30th. So we really raised expectations and then we had to shut it all down. So there was just a glitch in the need to know, wrong one that got posted up there. So anyways, for those of you who don't know me, um, my name is Brent Schartner. And uh, I serve on the board here, uh, served on the board here for four years, attended Kingdom City for seven years. Uh, my wife and I, we've been married 34 years. And yeah, sure, you can applaud. I'll take that applause, sure. <clears throat> we've, got, um, we've got four adult girls and four son-in-laws. And I, I think one of the, well, four son-in-laws and seven grandkids. So... Um, and then I, I think one of the most amazing things is that all of us attend Kingdom City and two of our daughters were serving here on worship. Our son-in-law was playing electric guitar. Our oldest was serving downstairs. So it's, it's just amazing to, to uh, go on a journey with Jesus with our whole family. So it's just an exciting thing. So we are currently in a, a summer sermon series called Seizing the Promises. And uh, last week, Greg, Greg spoke and did an, uh, he just gave an amazing word on the promise of uh, wisdom. And if you missed that, I would just encourage you to listen to it online. It's worth the listen. So this week, I get to, uh, I have the opportunity and the privilege uh, just to bring the word on God's promise of protection. And before we look at the promise of protection from a biblical view, I want to just briefly look at uh, what this looks like from a worldly perspective. So like, what is a promise? How would you define what a promise is? The dictionary describes a promise this way. A promise is a binding declaration that gives the person to whom it is made the right to expect or to claim the performance or forbearance of a specified act. That's a lot of wording. So for me, I'm just a simple guy, and I'll simplify things, and I just sum it up this way. A promise is a reason to expect something. So some of the, um, think of some of the promises that you've made. Were they all kept? We have either given promises that were broken or been on the receiving end of promises that were broken. Here's some examples. Your best friend says, I will never do that again. And how long until that promise is broken? Or, I promise, I will, you fill in the blank. In relationships and in marriage, we say that we love you forever, through the good and the bad. And then things change, and you say, I've fallen out of love with that person. How many times have you been the recipient of a broken promise? In our culture, a promise is our best effort to walk out what we say we will do. But when things change, then this results in a broken promise. So often, we completely fail at our promises. The incredible thing, there's good news. The incredible thing is that we believe in and serve a perfect God who does what he says and his word never fails. Scripture is full of promises from our perfect God. When he makes a promise, he keeps the promise. What he says really happens. When God speaks a promise, he is declaring that he will do exactly what he said. 
On our end, we've got the choice to either believe what God said is true and it will come to pass or it's just all hot air and there's no reality to it. When you read through scripture, in the Old and New Testament, scripture is full of countless promises from God. In Genesis, God picked a guy who we're just gonna call him Abraham. His name was actually slightly different than that prior. But he was an unbeliever from a pagan nation. Abraham had the faith to say yes to this God he hardly knew and it changed his life and it changed the rest of history. God promised him that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars. Abraham never saw that promise come to reality, but it came to pass centuries later. As Abraham's descendants grew into a nation, God unveiled promise after promise to him. Joshua 21 verse 45 says this, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. That is good news. So this morning, I want to dig into, the, into God's promise of protection. And if you don't remember anything else from this message, remember this. I've basically created a declaration from Joshua 1 verse 9. It says, I am strong. I am courageous. I am not timid. I am not fearful. Because the Lord my God is with me in every step that I take. Let me, let me just say it again. I am strong. I am courageous. I am not timid or fearful because the Lord my God is with me in every step that I take. So let me just bring some clarity to this. The strength, the courage, the fearlessness, they don't come out of your own personal inner strength. They come because the living God goes before you and walks beside you in every step of life's journey. There's a dependency and faith that the sovereign God is with you. He's bigger than you and will deliver you through every life circumstance. So here's a handful of promises from God pertaining to protection. Psalm 91, one and two. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge, my fortress, my God, in whom I trust. The protection, it comes from dwelling with God. Isaiah 41 verse 10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. We have to expect and allow God into our lives to, to provide the protection that can only come from him. Psalm 34, Psalm 34 verse 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. We're going to look at a couple different stories regarding protection. God's protection doesn't always look uh, it doesn't always look like what we want it to. There are times that he allows us to go through incredibly difficult situations, which in our minds might look like God has completely abandoned us. I want to assure you that God does not abandon you, but he uses these situations to shape you, to grow you, 
to mold you to who you are as a person. Isaiah 43 verse two says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. I will guarantee you that there will be times when life situations are beyond you. The Christian journey isn't all roses. John 16, says this, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. The common thread in all of these verses is that when we allow God into our whole being, he is with us and he gives us peace, he gives us strength, he protects us and he will fight for us. When you think of protector, is God the first one on your list? Is he the first one that comes to your mind? If not, who might that be? If you're in high school, it could be that incredible athlete. Maybe it's a coworker that is relentless for standing up for justice. If we broaden the idea of protector, many put their trust in government, believing that when the right person is in power, our communities, our cities, our country will be a safe place for us to live. While we need order in our country, it's a false hope to put your trust in a man and believe that they have all the answers. Psalm 20 verse seven says this, some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we, we trust in the name of the Lord our God. The idea here is that many will put their trust in tangible things that we can touch and we can see, but these are not gonna deliver like our God. So let's dig a little bit deeper into Joshua 1.9. It says, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. The first part of this verse, it says, have I not commanded you? So when God speaks, he puts it in our courts to believe and accept what he has said, that what he has said is truth and reality. And it's our step of faith that his word means what it says. It's astounding to me that for every truth that God puts forward, the devil creates a counterfeit or a lie. God says, I commanded you. And the devil whispers, God really didn't say that. He fills us with doubt and disbelief that God's word is not truth. So how do you overcome this? For every lie that you hear, replace it with the scripture that is truth. The verse says, be strong and courageous. The devil whispers, you are weak and you are faint. God says, do not be frightened. The devil says, you're a coward. God says, do not be dismayed or worried. And you, and you are overwhelmed or, or overwhelmed in your circumstance. God says, I will be with you wherever you go. The devil says, you are alone and no one is with you. So find scripture that replaces the lies with truth. Memorize it. 
write it on small cards and places and places where you see them often and you're reminded of the truth of God. Say them over continually until your mind has no more doubt and is full of agreement with God's truth. Ask God to remove the lies and to fill you with his peace. When it comes to divine protection, there is a part that is ours and there's a part that's God. Our part is the step of faith to believe and to walk in what he has said. God's part is to deliver on his promise of protection. So often, we don't invite God into our circumstances. Why? Because we lack the faith. We ignorantly just do things on our own, thinking that in our own strength it's going to work out. And this only lasts so long before we fail. I want to look at an Old Testament story of God's protection. I'm going to summarize the story leading up to the main event. So the people of Israel had become a divided nation with Judah in the south and Israel in the north. And as decades and centuries passed, each nation were ruled by either an ungodly king or there was actually a few godly kings that walked in the ways of God. Under the wicked king, the people would walk in ways of evil, doing what was right in their own minds. That statement right there is very similar to our culture today. Because of their waywardness, God would allow enemy nations to come and to conquer their territory and to bring them into a point of desperation where they would humble themselves and cry out to God for help. This cycle went on for decades and for centuries. And the godliest king since King David was Hezekiah. And during his reign, he boldly cleaned house in the nation. He removed the pagan altars. He removed pagan idols. He removed pagan temples. He sought God wholeheartedly. He reopened God's temple for worship. He reinstated the Levitical priests. And he reinstated Passover as a national holiday. Revival came under his reforms. 2 Kings 18, 5-7 says this. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but he kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him. Wherever he went out, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. So from 1935 to 609 BC, God used the Assyrians, who were the dominant world power, to chasten wayward Israel and Judah. There were numerous Assyrian kings over this period of time and continual conquest over Israel and Judah's territory. The current Assyrian king, Sennacherib, had gained control over the area of Judah and had conquered 46 of their walled cities. And the army marched toward the capital of Israel and prepared to launch an attack. In an attempt to save the capital of Jerusalem, Hezekiah, he tries to pay off the enemy king with large payments of gold and silver, but ultimately the king demands unconditional surrender. And Jerusalem is surrounded by an enemy army and their fate is inevitable. In one last attempt, 
three Judean officials meet with the heads of the Assyrian army. And here's the conversation. So the main one speaking here would have been the king's cupbearer, and he would have been an incredible linguist, uh, linguistic. And he, he articulates these next words here just in such a way that it just demeans the king and it demeans our God. So this is what he says. Say to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, on what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy for, and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting now in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem. Come now and make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you 2,000 horses if you're able to actually put riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Moreover, it is without the Lord that I have come up against this place to destroy it. The Lord said to me, and this is a complete lie, go up against this land and destroy it. Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you out of my hand. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, the Lord will surely deliver us and this city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me, come out to me, then each of, what, each of you will eat of his own vine, and each of you his own fig tree, and each of you will drink the water from his own cistern. Until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey, so that you may live and not die. Do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you by saying, the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations surrounding Judah ever delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Seraphim, Hena and Iva? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among the gods of the lands have delivered their lands out of my hand? That the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. But the people were silent and answered him not a word. For the king's command was, do not answer him. Rabshakeh, the person, the king's cupbearer, who had delivered this mocking message, he clearly articulated all of this. And he delivered us in a striking attack against God and his people. 
Have you ever been in a situation where the person that you were talking to had absolutely zero belief in, a sovereign, in the sovereign God and mocked and made fun of you when you shared your beliefs with him? I had a situation like that happen to me when we lived out in Quebec. There was a guy that I was working alongside and we had conversation and I just was honest and real with him and he just kind of looked at me and just mocked me for my belief in a sovereign creator and a sovereign God. And finally, I just shut up because there was no sense even trying to have any more conversation because he just figured I was a complete fool. So Hezekiah here, he now has a choice to make. Does he, does he cower under this mocking and demeaning message as he looks out of his palace window and sees a, a couple hundred thousand enemy soldiers waiting for the word to launch an attack on Jerusalem? Or does he say, I am strong, I am courageous, I am not timid or fearful because the Lord my God is with me in every step that I take. Every one of us here this morning has the same choice to make when we are faced with intimidating and overbearing circumstances. Do we bow to the pressure or do we stand with our God and believe that he will be with us in every step? So Hezekiah, he humbled himself before God and he sought God's face. He reaches out to the prophet Isaiah and seeks his counsel. He lays it all out to Isaiah, saying that this is a time of incredible distress, a time of rebuke and disgrace. And Isaiah gets back to him with these words. Thus says the Lord, do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard with which the servant of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and will return to his own land. And I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. Shortly after this, Hezekiah receives another mocking message. Hezekiah then takes this message. He spreads it out on the floor and he prays fervently to God. And here's his prayer. O Lord, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Hear the words of Sennacherib, which he sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the king of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands and have cast the gods into fires. For they are not gods, but the work of men's hands, of wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. That, that verse right there is key. O Lord, our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God. His cry was not that his own kingdom would be saved, but that God would be made known to all of the kingdoms. 
Isaiah sends word back to Hezekiah shortly after this. And this is what he answers. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria. He shall not come into the city or shoot an arrow there. Or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way he came, the same he shall return. And he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it. For my sake and for the sake of my servant David. That night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived in Nineveh. So that was a story that took place almost 3,000 years ago. What's the takeaway for us today? Hezekiah, he walked in the ways of the Lord. He did not waver that God was God. He absolutely knew that, just as in his prayer, God, you are creator over all the kingdoms of this earth. Hezekiah, he did not give in to the enemy. So this was a physical enemy. Often in our lives, we've got the devil that is just battling in, it doesn't matter, there's all kinds of different situations where he's just warring to try and get us to lose. And though there was great pressure for Hezekiah to surrender, there was no way that he was going to relent. And when the enemy is knocking at your door, what does it look like for you? Do you easily give in or do you take your stand? Hezekiah, he sought the Lord in prayer. When you have immense burdens on you, who do you turn to? Is it your own power, your own strength? Or those around you? Or do you turn to your father? Hezekiah sought godly counsel. Proverbs 24 verse 6 says, By wise guidance you can wage your war, and in an abundance of counselors there is victory. Another thing that Hezekiah uh, did is that he believed, he absolutely believed that the Lord would come through. Over and over in scripture, God tells us to have faith. And faith is believing that God is before you and that he's right there beside you in every aspect of your life. Faith is believing that there is no other God. Faith is believing that God will fight for you. Hezekiah asked the Lord for deliverance so that the surrounding nations could see and know the power of the living God. And that's exactly what he did. I want to close with a story from a, uh, it's a true story from a book. And it's a story that's very different from the one that we just looked at. And this book is called The Insanity of God. And it's an incredible story. The author is Nick, Nick Ripkin. And the story that I just want to uh, read to you, it's, it's an interview that he did of uh, a man by the name of Dimitri. And this story is very, very different from the one that I just read because this man, Dimitri, his life is from the USSR. And it's an incredible, um, 
it's just an incredible story, and this whole book is just filled with stories like this. And uh, if you read it, it's one of those books that you pick up, and you don't want to put it down just because it just captivates you and just keeps you going. Dimitri told me that he had been born and raised in a believing family. His parents had had taken him to church as a child. Over the decades, decades, he explained, communism slowly destroyed most of the churches and places of worship. Many pastors were imprisoned and killed. By the time he was grown, Dimitri told me, the nearest remaining church building was a three-day walk away. It was impossible for his family to attend church more than once or twice a year. One day, Dimitri told me, I said to my wife, you probably think that I'm insane. I know that I have no religious training whatsoever, but I am concerned that our sons are growing up without knowing Jesus. This may sound like a crazy idea, but what would you think if just one night a week we gathered the boys together so we could read them a Bible story and try to give them a little of the training that they are missing because we no longer have a real church? What Dimitri did not know was that his wife had been praying for years that her husband would do something like that. She readily embraced the idea. She started teaching, he started teaching his family one night a week. Dimitri would read from the old family Bible. Then he would try to explain what he had just read so that his children could understand. He soon relearned, or as they relearned and retold the Bible stories, his son soon began helping him with the task. Eventually, the boys and Dimitri and his wife were telling the familiar stories back and forth to each other. The more they learned, the more the children seemed to enjoy their worship, the family worship time. Eventually, the boys started asking for more. Papa, can we sing those songs that they sing when we go to the real church? So Dimitri and his wife taught them the traditional songs of their faith. It seemed a natural progression for the family not only to read the Bible and to sing, but also to take time together to pray. And they began to do that. Nothing could be hidden in the small villages. Houses were close together and windows were often open. Neighbors began noticing what was going on with Dimitri's family. Some of them asked if they could come and listen to the Bible stories and sing the familiar songs. Dimitri protested that he was not trained to do this. I'm not a minister. His excuse didn't seem to dissuade the neighbors. And a small group began gathering to share in the reading and telling the discussing of Bible stories and to sing and to pray together. By the time the little group had grown to 25, the authorities had noticed. Local party officials came to Dimitri. They threatened him physically, which was to be expected. What upset Dimitri was more their accusation. You have started an illegal church. How can you say that, he argued. I have no religious training. I'm not a pastor, and this is not a church building. We are just a group of family and friends getting together. All we are doing is reading and talking about the Bible, singing, praying, sometimes sharing what money we have to help out a poor neighbor. How can you call that a church? I almost laughed at the irony of his claim. But this was Ernie in my pilgrimage. I could not easily appreciate the truth that he was sharing. Looking back now, 
I understand that one of the most accurate ways to detect and measure the activity of God is to note the amount of opposition that is present. The stronger the persecution, the more significant the spiritual vitality of the believers. Surprisingly, all too often, persecutors sense the activity of God before the believing participants even realize the significance of what is happening. In the case of Dimitri, the officials could sense the threat of what he was doing long before it even crossed his mind. The communist official told Dimitri, we don't care what you call it, but this looks like a church to us. And if you don't stop, bad things are gonna happen. When the group grew to 50 people, the authority made good on the threats. I got fired from my job, Dimitri recounted. My wife lost her teaching position and my boys were expelled from school. And he added little things like that. When the number of people grew to 75, there was no place for everyone to sit. Villagers stood shoulder to shoulder, cheek to cheek inside the house. They pressed close inside. They pressed close in around the windows on the outside so they could listen to the, this man of God lead the people of worship or lead the people of God in worship. One night, as Dimitri spoke, sitting in the chair which I was now seated, the door to his house suddenly and violently burst open. An officer and soldiers burst through the crowd. An officer grabbed Dimitri by the shirt, slapped him rhythmically back and forth across the face, slammed him against the wall and said in a cold voice, we have warned you and warned you and warned you, and I will not warn you again. If you do not stop this nonsense, this is the least that is going to happen to you. As the officer pushed his way towards the back door, a small grandmother took her life in her hands, stepped out of the um, amnesty of the worshiping community and waved a finger in the officer's face. Sounding like an Old Testament prophet, she declared, you have laid your hands on a man of God and you will not survive. That happened on a Tuesday evening. And on Thursday night, that officer dropped dead of a heart attack. The fear of God swept through the community. And the next house church service, more than 150 people showed up. The authorities couldn't let this continue. So Dimitri was jailed for 17 years. The authorities moved Dimitri a thousand kilometers away from his family and locked him in a prison. His cell was so tiny that when he got out of bed, it took but a single step, either to get to the door of his cell, to reach the stained and cracked sink mounted to the opposite wall, or to use the foul open toilet in the corner. Even worse, according to Dimitri, was that he was the only believer among 15 hardened criminals. He said that the isolation from the body of Christ was more difficult than the physical torture. And there was much, much of that. Still, his tor tormentors were unable to break him. Dimitri pointed to two reasons for his strength in the face of torture. There were two spiritual disciplines that he had learned from his father. Habits that Dimitri had taken with him into prison. Without these two disciplines, Dimitri insisted his faith would have never survived. For 17 years in prison, every morning at daybreak, Dimitri would stand at attention by his bed, 
And as was his custom, he would face the east, raise his arms in praise to God, and would sing a heart song to Jesus. The reaction of the other prisoners was predictable. Dimitri recounted the laughter, the cursing, the jeers. The other prisoners banged metal cups against the iron bars in angry protest. They threw food and sometimes human waste to try and shut him up and to extinguish the only true light shining in that dark place. There was one other spiritual discipline, another custom that Dimitri told me about. Whenever he found a scrap piece of paper in the prison, he would sneak it back to his cell and he would pull out a snub of a pencil or a tiny piece of charcoal that he had saved and he would write on that scrap piece of paper as tiny as he could all the Bible verses, all the scripture stories, and all the songs that he could remember. When the scrap was completely filled, he would walk to the corner of his jail cell where there was a concrete pillar that constantly dripped water. Dimitri would take that paper fragment, reach as high as as he possibly could, and stick it onto that damp pillar as a praise offering to God. Of course, whenever the jailer spotted that piece of paper on the pillar, he would come into his cell, take it down, read it, and beat Dimitri severely, threatening him with death. Still, Dimitri refused to stop his two disciplines. Every day he rose at dawn to sing his song, and every time he found a scrap piece of paper, he filled it with scripture and praise. This went on year after year. His guards tried to stop him. The authorities did unspeakable things to his family. At one point, they even led him to believe that his wife had been murdered and that his children had been taken by the state. They taunted him cruelly. We have ruined your home. Your family is gone. And Dimitri's resolve finally broke. He told God he couldn't take it anymore. He admitted to the guards, you win, you win. I will sign any confession that you want me to sign. I must get out of here, and I must find my children. They told Dimitri, we will prepare your confession tonight, and then you will sign it tomorrow. Then you will go free. After all these years, the only thing he had to do was sign his name on a document saying that he was not a believer in Jesus, and that he was a paid agent of the Western governments trying to destroy the USSR. Once he put his signature on that dotted line, he would be free to go. Dimitri repeated his intention. Bring it tomorrow. I will sign it. That very night, he sat in his jail cell bed. He was in deep despair, grieving the fact that he had given up. At that moment, a thousand kilometers away, his family, his wife, his children, His brother sensed through the Holy Spirit the despair that Dimitri was in. His loved ones gathered around that place where I was sitting as Dimitri told me his story. They knelt in a circle and began to pray out loud for him. Miraculously, the Holy Spirit of the living God allowed Dimitri to hear the voices of the loved ones as they prayed. The next morning when the guards marched into his cell with the documents, Dimitri's back was straight. His shoulders were squared. There was strength on his face and in his eyes. 
he looked at his captors and declared, I am not signing anything. The guards were incredulous. They had thought that he had been beaten and destroyed. What happened, they demanded to know. Dimitri smiled and he told them, in the night, God let me hear the voices of my wife, my children and my brother praying for me. You lied to me. And now I know that my wife is alive and physically well. I know that my sons are with her and I know that they are still in Christ. I am not signing anything. His persecutors continued to discourage and silence him. But Dimitri remained faithful. He was so overwhelmed one day by a special gift from God's hand. In the prison yard, he had found a whole sheet of paper. And God, Dimitri said, had laid a pencil right beside it. Dimitri went on. I rushed back to my jail cell and wrote every scripture reference, every Bible verse, every story and every song I could recall. I knew that it was probably foolish, Dimitri told me, but I couldn't help myself. I filled both sides of the paper with as much of the Bible as I could. I reached up and stuck the entire sheet of paper on the wet concrete pillar. Then I stood and looked at it. To me, it seemed like the greatest offering I could give to Jesus from my prison cell. Of course, my jailer saw it. I was beaten, I was punished, and I was threatened with execution. Dimitri was dragged from his cell. And as he was dragged down the corridor in the center of the prison, the strangest thing happened. Before they reached the door leading to the courtyard, before stepping out into his place of execution, 1,500 hardened criminals stood at attention by their beds. Each of them faced the east and they began to sing. Dimitri told me that it sounded to him like the greatest choir in all of human history. 1,500 criminals raised their arms and began to sing the same heart song that they had heard Dimitri sing to Jesus every morning for all of those years. Dimitri's jailers instantly released their hold on his arms and stepped away from him in terror. One of them demanded to know, who are you? Dimitri straightened his back and stood as tall and proud as he could. And he responded, I am a son of the living God. And Jesus is his name. The guards, they returned him to his cell. And some time later, Dimitri was released and returned to his family. So what do we learn from that story? Totally different from the story of Hezekiah. Dimitri profoundly walked in the ways of the Lord. Dimitri would not give in to the enemy. He said yes for a little bit, but was so convicted and the Lord came through. Our God as a protector came in and stepped in at that time and he would not give in to the enemy. What else did Dimitri do? He sought the Lord in prayer. Dimitri believed, he absolutely believed that the Lord would come through. And what did Dimitri proclaim? He says, I 
am a son of the living God, and his name is Jesus. How many of us this morning, we get into difficult situations, some of them, some of them we're just looking for God to step in, and some of them we're just like at wit's end and we don't even know where to go. Who do you turn to? Two stories here, and both of, those, both of these men, what they did, how they walked it out, is very, very similar. There's a lot of parallels there. What do you do? If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, I want to encourage you to say yes to Jesus. Just admit that you're a sinner and invite him to come in and be a part of your lives. And then I want each of you just to remember this. I am strong. I am courageous. I am not timid. I am not fearful. Why? Because the Lord my God is with me in every step that I take. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you are faithful that when you make a promise to us, your word never fails. Lord, that you always come through despite how difficult or how easy the situation, you always come through. So God, give us the faith to say yes, the faith to just persevere to the end, the faith to just to stand firm in whatever it is that we're going through. The faith to believe that you are our God. Thank you, Lord, for who you are and that you meet us where we're at. So God, I just pray for these people this today and for the week ahead that this will just ring through their minds. I am strong. I am courageous. I am not timid and I am not fearful because the Lord, my God, is with me in every step that I take. In the name of the living God, amen. If, you, if any of you have prayer or just want to be prayed for, I want to invite you to the front. There'll be a ministry team up here that can pray for you. And um, thanks for being here this morning. And uh, we just bless you, and we'll see you in seven days.